Russell um, is the national editor of a magazine called The Atlantic. The Atlantic is a magazine that's um, been around since 1857, whose origins uh, is in Boston, and it has quite it has had quite the reputable um, array of authors over the years um, that have contributed to the various literary articles. It's a wonderful magazine. And Scott Stossel is be becoming fast one of my favorite um, authors to read. He's uh, just a genius with the pen. And he recently wrote an article called, wait for it, The End of Tom Brady. Ooh, you already don't like him. And now that you're all angry with me and not listening to me, I'm going to ask you to try to circle back and consider some of his thought-provoking insights into a much deeper issue that is transcendent to football um, as much as we enjoy a good game, if you're like me. He says this, for Patriot fans, the astonishing run of Brady Belichick dominance was a gift we had done nothing to earn, but from which we benefited. The association with greatness, with insurmountable and immortal achievements, with the aura of invincibility, felt good. And this is really what I've underlined in this. It conferred on us a borrowed transcendence of normal human mediocrity. We have the greatest coach, the greatest quarterback, the greatest team, and we didn't even have to leave our couch. In some tiny symbolic way, it obscured the horrible finality of death. We'll die, but what the Pats have accomplished in 18 years will live forever. <laughs> kind of maybe exaggerating a little bit, but isn't it true that when we associate ourselves with something excellent, we almost feel a borrowed excellence from them? I mentioned some, some weeks ago Julian Edelman, one of the, the um, more well-known players for the Patriots, complimenting Bill Pelichek because he witnesses him time and time again leaving the, the uh, the training center at midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And his, at one night when he was complimenting him about this, he replies to him, well, it beats being a plumber. <laughs> now, if you're a plumber, for some reason you're not offended. <laughs> we deflect that insult because we're sort of borrowing, again, the transcendence of normal human mediocrity, and we confer it onto ourselves. There's something missing in us. There's a fullness of life that we sort of lack, and we're trying to find it anywhere we can. Is that true? Whether it be a great football team or performance at work or artistic genius, we're trying to fill in the gap of our own heart that says to us that something's wrong, that we're missing out on life. There's a fullness of life that some appear to be living out and somehow, for some reason, we're just missing it, and we wonder why. We fall, so we start to assume that business gurus and athletic champions and pop superstars and the ultra-beautiful, the sexually magnetic, the political giants, the artistic, literary, scientific geniuses, they somehow have found full and meaningful and purposeful lives, but I'm just grasping at straws. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? 
Isn't that true? Do you remember the words of Madonna? I've, I've read these to you before, but let's, let's be reminded of them again because they're really insightful. She knows herself probably better than most of us. She says, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it, and I discover my, myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody over and over again. My struggle has never ended, <clears throat> and it probably never will. Madonna. Friends, our aim for the past few weeks um, has, to talk about, it has been to talk about who Jesus is. The title of our sermon series is Supreme Jesus, because Jesus is indeed supreme. And that's been the title of our series as we go through this New Testament, this short letter in the New Testament called Colossians that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Colossae, which is currently in Greece. Our vision, by the way, at Refuge, has, has been communicated to you a few times from up here um, recently. And it's, and it's basically so that we ourselves as a church and our neighbors, the people around us in our towns and communities, would know Christ and by our knowledge of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, would finally find the life they're looking for, that they've been looking for all along, but just in the wrong place. And this morning, our text speaks powerfully into the identity crisis that plague many of us as Americans, as human beings. And the, and the scriptures do it with a warning. And this is what it says, and let me remind you. See to it that no one takes you captive, for in Christ you have been brought to fullness. See to it that no one takes you captive, for in Christ you have been brought to fullness. So our text gives like this plain witness to us that we are in one of two places in life. We are either captives or we are free. We are free or we are slaves. There's only two categories, according to Scripture, that you're captives, that you, you are not experiencing the full life that you were created to live because you're a captive to something. We're going to go over this this morning. So we're either captives or we're free. We're set free in Christ, filled and freed to know the real life that we've been after all along but never could find. So this morning, I'd like to examine a bit more closely <clears throat> to learn the power of Christ for life, because it's the answer. And I'm going to look at it, a few things that, that our text draws out. And the first thing I want to look at is the source. I want to consider the source. Where do you suppose to get your freedom from, your fullness of life from? I want to suggest to you this morning that you're never going to really know who you are, where you are, or why you are if you're only listening to you, right? Something deep inside of you is saying what you need is this or that. You need to go left or right. And if that's the only voice we ever listen to, we'll follow that voice and find at the other end of it just a very fleeting satisfaction. So in our text, we read a sense of urgency. See to it that you don't get taken captive through hollow and deceptive 
philosophy which depends on human tradition. That means, very simply, ideas that center in our own human thinking that are separate from God, independent from what he has said or what he has taught us. So we read in this a sense of urgency, of critical importance, so much so that if you're robbed of them, you'll be robbed of your freedom. You'll be held captive. Isn't that an interesting word here? It means to be kidnapped in the original Greek. The source of that kidnap, the thing that kidnaps us, deceives us and puts us into this futile attempt at finding full life, but only to find it empty. The source of that captivity is called deceptive philosophy depending on human tradition. Now, this church in particular was a church like ours, okay? They had a worldview. They had a culture around them, the Roman culture, that believed certain things about life. Philosophies were developed just like ours. Well, one had crept into the church for them that was deceiving them, that was telling them that there was a source outside of Christ that they could know fullness of life through. So they had been exposed to this false teaching that taught them that this fullness was found in a sort of mystical trance. Now this seems kind of like far removed from us because these, this is not our answer in our culture, having like some kind of mystical trance, right? Some secret hidden philosophical knowledge that only really the most spiritually elite could attain. So that's what they were saying at the time. If you were devout, if you sought after it, then you could discover it. So the, the riddle to like Madonna's um, insecurity and existential crisis, her quest for significance, was buried sort of in this deep secret knowledge that she could eventually earth up. And if it sounds mysterious and weird to you, and, you don't really are, and you're not really following me, get in line. That's the point. It is mysterious. So it, likely what was happening at the time was an early form of what they called Gnosticism. And alongside of Gnosticism came Jewish legalism. So this sort of crept into the church, this prizing of earth, earthly wisdom alongside of religious obligation. And that sort of is what was the catalyst to make you full and to experience life to its fullest degree. Both friends are called in this text deceptions, lies, empty, because they don't work. Philosophy that's not based on what is true, but on human invention. Now, all of us draw conclusions about life and what is true and what is false and what is right and what is wrong. Isn't that true? We all have a system of morals that come from somewhere. Some people, there was this, there was this, um, this guy named John Wesley in the, in the um, 1700s that came up with this phrase called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And what this means, basically, is we get our, our information from four, one of four places. And he said it will come from tradition, it will come from scripture, it will come from experience, or it will come from reason. We all use all four of these things. So, so for example, where, do, where does a Roman Catholic get their truth from? Tradition, right? The church and scripture. And all of that, they have experience and reason to it, filters 
it, it all gets filtered together, but what gets front-loaded for a Roman Catholic is, is scripture and, and tradition. For an evangelical, I would have to say that we probably more are, are top-loading scripture and reason. Isn't that true? For someone who is secular, tradition and scripture are probably way down here. Their scriptures might be different. They might, we might not be talking about the Bible. We might be talking about Camus or, some, or, or Shakespeare, someone that they really prize. So they have some sort of text that's defined for them what is true and right and good. But ultimately, a secular person would say, my reason is at the top. Isn't that true? But I can reason to be right and true. That's where we get this from. Scripture says outside of Christ, all of them are empty. They only take us so far. Because, and here's the simple reason, we're not God. Everything that we can develop, any system that we can conjure up that will help us understand what's right and wrong, will only take us so far because of the limitations of our own humanity. So all of our conclusions about life, about right and wrong, about God, about this world, even our own nature. Tradition, friends, by the way, has a sort of aroma of dignity to it. Our culture is not a traditional culture. We don't prize what our grandparents believed. It's not passed down to us as sacred. But, but many cultures in our world today still prize tradition, and they follow that tradition. It can sort of be a litmus test for what's true. If it's not following tradition, it's got to be wrong, right? We might have grandparents or great-grandparents that were more like that, weren't they? Other cultures like ours prize more independent and creative thought, right? It doesn't matter what grandma and grandpa believed. What's, what's right? What's true? What does reason teach us? So that thought elevates reason over tradition. But friends, in our text, the key word is human. It's not so much what one do you front load, what one is to you the most important one, whether it be reason, tradition, experience. The, the key word in our text is human reason, human tradition, human experience, you see? Tradition, reason, all of these, even I would say scripture, is li limited by our humanity. We can only take ourselves so far, is my point. We are limited by our own humanness. So friends, to think and to live independently of God is futile and what scripture calls even demonic. The elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than Christ, the, the scriptures say. You know what legalism is? This, is? this tends to be more of a, like so we think at least, a church word. Legalism is how religious people are saved, how they're safe in the afterlife. They, they have a set of rules, they follow them, and if they do a good enough job, they're okay, right? And we think that's bound to religion, don't we? But we're all, everyone, the most anti-religious person can be a legalist. They have a set of values that if they fall short of, their God, whatever it is, judges them. Isn't that true? Their God could be their mom. It could be some teacher. It could be that internal voice inside them. They fall short, and their law condemn, condemns them. Isn't that true? And today, <clears throat> um, we have all sorts of ways in which we do this. We have other proofs besides legalism that do basically the same thing. 
that pronounce on us, they confer on us a sense of purpose. Maybe not our adherence to some law, but maybe our popularity or our success or our excellence. And both of these are empty, deceptive, and a lie from the father of lies. Friends, worldly philosophy disconnected from the source of all wisdom. That's all philosophy is, right? It's just wisdom. Worldly human philosophy, human wisdom disconnected from the source of all wisdom is empty and short-lived. It leads to slavery of mind, body, and spirit. And this is number two, because Christ is the head, according to our scripture. Let's explain this for a little while, because this is important. For in Christ, all the fullness, and this is verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. It's saying that Jesus Christ is the head over all things, over all creation. How many people know that your head that sits atop your neck is important? Right? Your life sort of depends on your head, doesn't it? Your life, your, your head gives action and movements to every other member of your body. Isn't that true? The head is an important thing. It's our source. This is what sort of the point was before. Consider your source. Well, if Christ is the head, to take that head off of us and put any other head on us is to, in, is to, in, um, to make us unable to achieve anything that we sort of want to achieve in life as far as being filled with the fullness of life. So without the head, friends, there is no life. Living fully minus a head doesn't work. Some of us try to do that, but you can't. Isn't that true? When I, when I was about 16, this was, so, this was way back in 96, okay? When I was about 16 in 1996, my, my family... My mom and Dave, they, they purchased the first family computer that our family had. We didn't have a computer prior to that, okay? So you guys might remember the first time you might have purchased a computer and put it in your home. And we had America Online. Do you remember this? It was dial-up internet. And it would take maybe a full minute, maybe more, just to get a picture on the screen from the internet. Right, and you'd hear, hear all those kind of weird noises, sort of following. You're, you know, it's coming up. It's like, you know, a quarter of the, of the picture is done. You can start to see this is a face, right? And then, and, you know, five minutes later, ten minutes later, you've had dinner. You woke up in the morning, and the picture was there. And it was really cool, right? You guys remember this? Right, so that was America Online, dial-up internet. It was pretty awesome. And today... We, we enjoy almost the opposite, lightning fast speed. Some of you are wearing wa smartwatches, right? Or, or you have a phone in your pocket that is lightning fast. You can watch movies on this thing in a split second. Isn't that true? And you can do it over the internet too. Every, the, the technology that we have today is phenomenal. But what is true today was true then too. That without a brain in any of our computers, none of them work. Isn't that true? None of them work. The processor, the CPU, I think if it's still even called that. Computers need these to work because if you don't have them, all you really have is a nice little finger exercise with the, with the keys. Maybe a nice little nightlight. 
Outside of, of a brain, your computer doesn't do anything except lighten up a, a room dimly. You see, friends, when we remove Christ, who is the head, from the equation of life, all we're left with are en- elemental principles of the created thing, none of which are the source of our life. It's, it's as if I asked you to edit a video on a, on a laptop that didn't have a processor. You can't do it. It's futile. It's empty. It's useless. Friends, Jesus is the one in whom the whole fullness of God dwells in bodily form. That is what this means, the source of life, the creator, the one who gives us purpose and meaning and function. Apart from Christ, this fullness dwells in whatever we think might replace him. In religious observance, in sensual lusts, in excellent skill sets, whatever it might be. We answer where the fullness of life is found, and we then begin to associate ourselves with it. We hang out with it. So we become Pat's fans. They seem to have it figured out. But this fullness is only found in Jesus, friends. Be- not, not because it sounds good. Not because we, th- we, we have this weird fixation with Jesus Christ. Not because of what we even think about him, but because of who he is in reality. The fullness of life. So we can hem and haw about it. We can complain. We can resist him. But friends, my, my suggestion to you is that if he is the source of your life, he is what you've been looking for all along. The head gives uniformity, doesn't it? Our, this is what our heads do for the rest of us. Give you a little biology lesson, okay? Our heads give all of us uniformity, intimacy, and purpose. Let me explain to you what I mean. Every member of the body, of your bodies, I'm talking about your physical body right now, your head gives uniformity, intimacy, and purpose. That, so the head causes the body to work together. Right? My, my hand is, doesn't have a mind of its own so that it's slapping my other hand to stop it from doing what it's trying to do. Isn't that true? You work together. You're going food shopping, your feet press the gas pedals. Your eyes look at the road. Your, you know, your body works together to accomplish what the brain is telling it to accomplish. So the head causes the body to work together in uniformity. The head causes the body to care for and appreciate each member. If you slam your toe, all of the other members of your body immediately take up interest in your toe. Isn't that true? To care for it. My injured little finger you heard about last week. The head causes the body to have a distinct purpose for each member. I don't try to write a letter with my feet. I, my brain uses my hands for that. So each member of my body uh, ascribes a function and uses each member for a function, for a purpose. And friends, and, and because of that, if we're healthy, we'll have a pleasing life, won't we? Now t- take away the head and what do you observe? Disunity. Each person resisting each other. And isn't that the story of our world? Selfishness and insecurity. We have no 
clear purpose of who we are or why we are because our head is gone. We've put another head on us. And the only head is Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the full expression of God to us and the head of all creation, then our fullness is dependent on our surrender to him as our head. Isn't that true? So then the source for life is Christ, the head over us, as we are made alive with him, grafted back in. You see, we were separated because of sin, but by faith we're grafted back in, and we find our purpose again. Verses 11 and 12 remind us of some symbols the Bible uses to describe the process of being separate from Jesus and then being joined back to him. And it gets a little messy, doesn't it? Circumcision and baptism. These are symbols of what the Bible is trying to say. This is what you were, and this is how you're grafted back, and this is how it was made right. Okay, so it uses these symbols of circumcision and baptism to describe what was the condition of our lives prior to faith and what is the condition after. Does that make sense? The text tells us that by faith in Jesus, we were once dead, that is cut off from the head. We had a different head, so our our life was futile. But now, in Christ, we're made alive again. We're grafted back in. Baptism pictures death to life by being submerged in water and risen from it. Death to life. Circumcision pictures death to life as we had something joined to us that was sort of killing us, like a tumor. And then in Christ, it was cut off so that we could have life. So our passage makes clear that the human condition is shared, it's universal, it's timeless, and we're in trouble. The human plight, ultimately, we can use one word to describe it. It's death. Separation from God who is life. And the passage describes the outcome of faith in Jesus, and it should answer the longings of all of our hearts. To be made alive in Christ, to experience his fullness by faith, according to this text, you are circumcised in Christ, in whom, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Jesus. Now this is getting real, isn't it? Circumcised by Jesus. See, that's why I'm not a Christian. This is funky. What's going on here? It's not an actual one. They're talking about something spiritual, something in the heart. The whole self, whose head, remember the head, formally, according to this passage, was not Jesus. It was something earthy. It was something killing you. It never worked. It never provided the answers you're looking for. You're separate from God, who is your source of life. The reasoning of our hearts apart from God empty philosophy depending on earthly thinking this in christ is cut off that's the symbol of circumcision it's cut off and thrown away and it's in that way that believers have died with christ in his death you see the old head dies and something is put in his place a new head reigns and That head is Christ. So friends, the outcome of faith in Christ means that you are circumcised in Christ, but also that you are buried and raised 
with Christ in baptism symbolically. Having been buried with him in baptism, in verse 12, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Friends, you know, if this says anything, it's that Christ died. He actually really died. And everyone in Christ, by faith, likewise, goes through their own death. Some, if you're ever going to come to Christ and get his life, something has to die first. It reminds us that when we come to faith in Jesus, that faith comes along with a real change. Something is new. Something was dead, and now it's not anymore. The old life under the old head is fundamentally changed so that the old life is indeed a thing of the past. You see, friends, that means that there are no, there are no Christians that are also likewise transformed. Romans chapter 6 tells us this clearly. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have new life. You see, friends, where do we get life, real life, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That by faith we participate in. Something dies and something is risen again. And let me tell you a little bit more about what this means. The same power which caused Jesus' dead body to breathe is the power that gives you that he gives you to believe in him. To have life yourself. It's the power that transforms all our false gods, all our empty devotions and false pursuits and gives us hope and life in Christ who is the only source of it. You see, the reason a Christian can be made alive, the reason any one of you can be made alive is because in Christ, you have been forgiven. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. And that's what it says right here in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, right? So dead, you didn't have a life that was really full and complete. The one that you were looking for, it was empty. It was dead, separate from God in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with Christ. And how? By forgiving you your sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Oh, every single word in this verse is dripping with meaning. And I wish I had just a lot of time to explain it all to you. But I'm just going to take a few moments because it's so important. God kills, when we put faith in Christ, God kills our flesh, the false head, the, the head that, that is lifeless, and its master. And he brings us to new life under the living head, Jesus Christ, and he does this by canceling out a debt that you owed. The, the, the sin that separated you from God, which was the reason why you didn't have life to begin with, he forgives it and incorporates you back into his body. You see? 
He forgives us all of our sin. Notice that word all. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say the really bad, the, the really, not the not so bad ones versus the ones that are awful. Not some, not just the past ones, but the future ones too. Not, not just the ones before we trusted in Jesus, but now we're on our own to be good and live up. Friends, the term dead points to our separation from God, the empty way of life that we aim to in vain make full. It's caused in Scripture by our sin, which results in death, separation from God. But the death of Christ makes anyone who believes alive by canceling out our legal indebtedness that stood against us and condemned us. Friends, what what's the Bible is talking about here? This is sort of like a legal IOU. I'm, I'm not even exaggerating here. I've read a lot of different commentaries on this. What it's saying is this is like an IOU, a legally binding proof that you owe like money to somebody else or something to somebody else, right? There is a legally binding IOU that we have to God. By, and you know what it is? It's an IOU. It's by our own admission that we're indebted to God. And here's why. If we are God's special creation, we are obligated to complement his intended purpose for us. You see, if we are God's special creation, it means that we are bound to be his image bearer, to honor the purpose of his creating us. And when we don't do that, it does do two things. It cuts us off from him because of his holiness and righteousness and leaves us empty. You see, that's the, the consequence of all this. So that we are under his law. You see, friends, to complement the intended purpose for us would have meant that we would have gladly accepted him as our head in all of the implications of that law, of him being our head. The curse for breaking God's law is death. And in, in the Bible, God makes a covenant with mankind through Moses. You know what that covenant is? It's, it's, it's Exodus chapter 20, it's the Ten Commandments. A covenant basically is a relational contract. It has certain elements. Those elements include stipulations. We'll do this and that, right? We won't do this and we won't do that. That's what the Ten Commandments are. They include blessings, the benefits of keeping the covenant. If you keep the covenant, here's all the good things that are going to happen to you, right? They include curses. If you don't keep the covenant, here are the bad things that are going to happen to you, right? That's what, that's what the covenant outlines. This is all in Exodus chapter 20. You know, friends, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the fine print of the blessings and the curses that come along with breaking God's law. Friend, let me, let me try to help you understand this a little better. If God is the head, our life is bound to the, the intrinsic natural laws that come from it. Let me explain to you what I mean. I have a head and a body, okay? If my hand doesn't listen to my brain, it's a bad day, right? Because the brain presumably is looking out for the good of the hand, isn't it? So my brain provides a law that complements the well-being of the rest. You see, if we're God's creation, 
we're under his law. And it's not to make our lives miserable. It's not to give us a hard time. It's to, so that we'll thrive, so that we'll have life. But we resist it. We rebel against it. And the Bible says that when you do this, here are the curses that are going to happen. And Deuteronomy, in all sorts of um, incredible ways, describes the blessings and the curses of breaking God's law. Deuteronomy is that fine print. It details all the blessings and curses that come from his covenant with man. Consider our text again. He forgave all our sin and canceled out the charge of legal indebtedness. He's talking about Deuteronomy. He's talking about the curse that is pronounced on us because we've broken his law. He's saying he's taken Deuteronomy and he's nailed it to the cross. He's taking the curse of sin and he's finishing it on Jesus instead of you. Isn't that incredible? Paul is referring to that curse, which he refers to over and over again in, in In Scripture, Romans chapter 5, he says the wages of sin is death. That's sort of like a summary statement of all of Deuteronomy. The curse of breaking God's covenant of love is separation. And listen to what it says in Romans 2. If you think, well, I don't know about any of this curse in Deuteronomy. It doesn't apply to me. I I didn't know about any law. Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans, Romans 2. Indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law or know anything about it do by nature, things required by the law. They are a law for themselves. In other words, they have a conscience. They know innately the law of God, even though they might not call it that. You see, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have it. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts accusing them, and at other times even defending. Friends, in Christ, God takes the legal and condemning document, and he nails it to the cross. He takes the curse and puts it on Jesus Christ. And it says in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Friends, the debt is impossible for any of us to pay, but God deals with it. He blots it out. He pays it in full. And you know, he does one more thing for you. And this is absolutely wonderful. The former power stands defeated. He wins. Every foe, every enemy, every temptation, Every struggle, he defeats for you. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he makes a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. You see, that means in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of Eve, the conqueror, the victorious one, Jesus Christ, once and for all and finally crushes that serpent Satan. And your enemy is defeated. The message of the cross is a message of hope for anyone living in fear. That's what this means. Your life is given back to you. Your debt is canceled. Your foe is defeated. There is no power over you anymore should you be in Christ. There is no accusation over you. You are not guilty of anything. And you have the promise of life.
Isn't that great? God is exposed to the universe, the utter uselessness of his enemies. And friends, I have one more final word to you. Can I ask you, who might your head be? Who is your head? Is it Christ or is it you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for your favor. We pray, Lord God, that we would be mindful that we are created in your image and that our life, fullness, and happiness is found in our association with Jesus Christ. God, that you are good to us and you love us. Friends, if you don't know Christ this morning, would you come to him? Would you cry out to him? Would you say something like, God, I have been looking everywhere for life and I've fallen short and it's because Christ is the head. I surrender to him. He is Lord and Savior. God, we thank you, Lord, for canceling out our debt and for grafting us back in to your body. We pray, Lord God, that anything that I might have said that was wrong would be uh, forgotten. And God, that anything that was said this morning that honored Christ would be remembered and applied. God, we thank you so much, Lord, now that as we get to celebrate your supper and break bread and drink this juice, that we would remember that Jesus Christ is indeed the resurrection and the life. God, we pray now, Lord, for your blessing and for your help. We think of anyone here, Lord, that is sick or suffering. Would you bless them and encourage them? I think of our brother Jay, who recently lost his, his dad. I pray that you would encourage his heart and bless him and thank you for his life. I pray, God, Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, and for the things that we carry, the things that encourage us. I pray, Lord, um, even for those things, Lord, that are um, discouraging us. I pray, Lord, that we would find comfort in your word and in Christ. Bless us now as we take this um, communion. I pray, Lord, that you would um, just honor its intention. In Jesus' name, amen. Supper has been part of the weekly worship service of gathered followers of Jesus since the birth of the church. It is a practice the local church is instructed to perform regularly and soberly. At Refuge Church, we approach the table with reverence and gratefulness as we serve Jesus together as members of his body. Receiving the Lord's Supper is a public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, marked by a new affection for him and willingness to follow and obey him. It is an identification with Jesus and his people. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, we ask you to simply observe the church in their demonstration of faith and love to Jesus and to each other, and to do something far more important. Seek the Lord in silent prayer. Consider what you have heard and what he has done for sinners like us. None of us, not even followers of Jesus, should take the supper in an unworthy manner. 
So before we come to receive the elements, let's examine ourselves and confess to Jesus, who is faithful and right to forgive us whenever we ask. As the music plays, you may come forward when you're ready to receive the elements. If the ushers are not up front, they will leave the elements on the table in front of the pulpit. 